0: Welcome to a breath of fresh air with Sandy Kay. Cause it's a beautiful day. Mm-hmm. A breath of fresh air.
1: Beautiful day, oh baby, any day that you're gone away. It's a beautiful day. Hello and welcome to the show. I hope you've enjoyed a terrific week. Today we're heading to New Orleans to learn about one of the most important and underrated acts in the funk genre. The band is called The Meters. They were formed in 1965 by the masterful keyboard player and vocalist Art Neville.
0: Down in New Orleans where the blues were born It takes a cool cat to blow a horn On the and rampart street The combos play with a mambo beat Marigua,
1: mambo, mambo, mambo Marigua, mambo, mambo In the 60s and 70s, the Meters performed both their own music and served as backing players for musicians like Lee Dorsey and Robert Palmer, amongst others. They didn't have a whole lot of mainstream success, but their influence has been very far-reaching, with them even being considered by many to be as equally influential in funk as the likes of James Brown. Their music has been sampled nearly 200 times by hip-hop artists and many rock acts like The Grateful Dead and The Red Hot Chili Peppers have played their songs. is george porter jr a founding member of the meters george porter jr was recently honored with a grammy lifetime achievement award and he's been a driving force in the world of funk soul and r&b for more than five decades george porter jr thanks so much for joining us here on a breath of fresh air what a pleasure to have your company Uh,
0: thank you very much for the invite
1: You want to walk us through your early life and we'll lead up to what's going on for you today?
0: Well, yeah, Art Neville kind of recruited me into a a new band that he was starting. At the time, it didn't have a name. It was just Art Neville and the band. (laughs) And then we were playing a club called the Nightcap in uptown New Orleans. And this disc jockey, he would come and visit us on Saturday nights. We used to play like Thursday, Friday, or Saturday at this club. So this one particular Saturday night, the, um, this disc jockey came on stage and int- he wanted to introduce the band for the third set. And uh, he came up on stage and he made a big speech and everything. And he and said, Welcome to the stage, Art Neville and the Neville Sound Band, which at the time, there was only Art Neville in the band. It was, you know, it was, a, it was a five-piece band with Art Neville, Leo Nocentelli, Joseph Modeles, and a saxophone player named Gary Brown. Uh-huh. And myself, we played that nightcap for a couple of years. I'm kind of like foggy in my mind of what year we actually left the nightcap and went to the French quarters and where we played and the band shrunk down to just four pieces. But I, I think I, it had to be somewhere like late 65, 66.
1: And that's when the name change um, um, came
0: along? Yeah, and then the, at that point... We were the band was being called Art Neville and the Boys at that time, because of the gentleman, the keyboard piano player used to play opposite of us on Bourbon Street. He would play a solo piano and he would he would sing the song Bill Bailey, and he said, "Won't you come home, Art Neville? Won't you come home and bring your boys with you?" <laughs>
1: DJ wasn't the only one visiting the club to check out the new band on the scene. The renowned pianist, producer, songwriter, and recording artist Alan Toussaint was also on the prowl.
0: Alan would come down, and, you know, from every now and then, and he would, you know, kind of park his El Dorado on the street and listen to us play. The doorman would always tell us when he's there. He say, "Yeah, man, your boy, your boy, um, your boy Alan Toussaint was outside listening to y'all." And then one Saturday night. Or told us that um, Alan wanted us to come down to his studio that Monday, you know, to, to do some demos or, or, or to, to audition. That's what it was. And we went down that Monday, did an audition um, for Alan. And basically, we were playing some Lee Darcy's songs, the songs that was eventually keynoted for Lee Darcy. Hanging out all night long, hanging out till my money's gone. I finally stumbled home, sat and broke and all alone. Oh, me, oh my, oh, what am I gonna do?
1: Oh, me, oh my, oh, looks pretty much like I'm a fool.
0: He did very well, you know, as a tracking band for Alan, so, he, you know, we got the job. <laughs>
1: And you became his house
0: band then, yeah? We became his his house band for um, several years.
1: George, how big was Alan Tussend at that time? Well, he
0: had a pretty, I I would think he was not as large as he got as he went on, but he he was pretty well known. He was probably one of the most um, prolific recording songwriters in the city at the time. Right. You know, record labels from all over the all over the world were sending their artists to him to record. So, you know, we recorded behind a lot of a lot of people.
1: Some of them that we did hear were people like Dr. John and Paul McCartney, Lee Dorsey, as you mentioned, Earl King, Robert Palmer, and of course, you did play backing with Patti LaBelle on that number one hit, Lady Marmalade, didn't you?
0: Yes, I did. Yes, I did. A wonderful session. We went through three drummers to do that, to get that session recorded. How come? <laughs> well, um, there was a difference between, um, you know, between the drummer and, uh, and the drummers and Alan. The session started as with the original meters, the original four meters, Zig, Leo, Art, and myself. And then I think just the air of three Capricorns being in the same room, trying oh. to function <laughs> over, over, over a few years as, as we have been doing. I guess that that, um, it, that Zig and Alan just wasn't gelling anymore. So Zig kind of backed away from the session. And um, Jams Black was brought in, another wonderful um, drummer from New Orleans. He was brought in, but um, he he and Alan didn't gel at all from the start. So uh, Jams was just in there for that one day, uh, maybe two tracks, And, you know, Alan, you know, took a break, a lunch break, and then the engineer would call in and say, oh, we're done for the day, gentlemen. (laughs) Same same time tomorrow. The new drummer. The next day we came in and Herman Ernest was the drummer, and he's (laughs) the one who ended up finishing the record. Yeah.
1: Patty LaBelle? How was she to work with? Well, Patty,
0: we really didn't have much contact, you know, with her and the audience. But um, the last day of the session, I think, as I remember, mom, I brought them to my mom's house. My mom fixed a dinner for us at Gumbo and stuff like that. And, you know, they were good people, you know, all three of them, her and Sarah and, um, and what's the other guy's name? God, I uh, can't think of her name. And I, and I was in New York a couple of months ago and, just, and called her.
1: Don't worry. We've all got that going on as we get older. Yeah,
0: yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm roughly 75 now.
1: <laughs> ah, well, you're, you're doing pretty well and making fabulous music. We're going to talk about the new album shortly, but just going back to the meters at the outset, I mean, you became pretty well-known during that time as as house band for Alan. In fact, you did the song Sissy Strut," came off your self-titled 1969 debut. That became your greatest commercial hit, didn't it?
0: That, I think that was the um, one that climbed the charts better. Yeah, that was the, the biggest one. We had about like two or three others that kind of opened the doors. I think it was um, "Looka Pie Pie." I believe it was the other one was "Don't Don't 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 Don't." I forget the name. You know, it'll
1: come. It'll it'll come back to us a long time ago now for but sure.
0: We we had we had five songs that actually went into the charts, the Billboard charts, not just the R and B charts, but the popular charts, yeah. which was for New Orleans artists. We were the first or um, New Orleans artists to do that. That was pretty cool.
1: Cutting the way for funk at the time, weren't you? You you were known as one of the progenitors of funk, along with Sly and the Family Stone and Parliament Funkadelic. There wasn't too much of that going on.
0: Yeah, uh, well, you know, for in in my world, I never, you know, I never thought of the, of the, the music as being funk. But you know, I, I always used to tell a joke about it uh, on that how where funk music. Came from you know, is that when one this one early morning this kid wake, uh, wakes up on the sofa with a joint in his hand and he hears some music and and he leans over and say oh man that's funky. <laughs> 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 there hence the um, idea of punk music. The you
1: know? title, right? What what had you considered it before it was labeled funk?
0: Well, it was always labeled R and B. You know, we were we were labeled an R and B a R and B band. So you know, and then they did so there was blues and then there was rhythm and blues, and we were always considered the R and B band, um, you know, until you know until um, we moved. And in. in fact, I think we got kind of started calling us a funk band when we are uh, around seventy five, mostly seventy five, but really in seventy six when we did those two Rolling Stones tours. Then the writers writers start saying the Rolling Stones had a funk band on tour with them, you know.
1: So it was kind of more of an adjective than a noun. Yes, yes. And what were those tours like with the Stones? That must have been an amazing Uh, experience.
0: Yeah, it was. It was very, very unique. Very
1: unique. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, open up a bit. I mean, they were, they were bad boys. Everybody was partying right, very yeah. hard in we're, those
0: days. I was very hard. I played hard, hard, hard myself. I mean, I would probably say 76 was the beginning of my really hard, hardcore hard cocaine use. I mean, I had been using cocaine prior to that and smoking pot since I was 16. But in 76, I really started doing large numbers of large amounts of of cocaine and uh, in fact it almost almost ended me in 76 at the end of that tour i got home and i played a gig on i think it was like a saturday night and i went home and went to bed and the next time i woke up was four days later and i was in the hospital and um apparently um my wife's my wife said that she called an ambulance for me because when she when she woke up, she looked over the side of the bed, and I had, I had I was like I was pale, seriously pale, looked like there was no blood in my body, and she called the hospital, and pretty much the doctor told my mom that I had double pneumonia, and it was funny but not funny. But he told he told my mom that's how my mom found out that I was using cocaine. He told my mom that if it wasn't for the cocaine, I probably would have been dead. So the, 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 I had double pneumonia, but the cocaine apparently Saved was you. doing something. The cocaine was doing something to, to my body to keep me from killing myself. I, I, you know, I don't know how. Don't do it. Did that experience curtail your usage? For a few months, yeah, for a few months. But it, it wasn't until um 88 that I got completely sober. I've been sober um 34 years now.
1: Right. Uh, you are lucky that you did, aren't you? Because it could have really taken a terrible toll. Yeah,
0: well, you know, it was it was uh, um, the thought of actually losing my family that, that got me into a treatment center.
1: Right. And right.
0: um and and, and and has kept me sober. Yeah.
1: Congratulations. There's a lot to be said for that. Music, isn't it the meters were known for being down home and earthy even if in their private lives they were going off the rails hang in lots more to come
0: mm-hmm. this is a breath of fresh air
1: with sandy k it's a beautiful day so glad you're still with me george porter jr grew up in new orleans on the same street as future meters bandmate joe zigaboo model east The two became friends when George was 10, and as teens, they used to jam together. It came as no surprise to anyone that they both ended up in the same group. At one stage of your life, you considered joining the priesthood.
0: (laughs) When I was uh, 14 and 15, actually 13 and 14, somewhere between my my 14th birthday, uh, I went to a a, a Catholic monastery up in, in Mississippi, not far from my house. And you know it was um, considering um the the the, um, the priesthood but the problem that that turned me against it was that it was a retreat i guess it was called a retreat but i uh, we had to we had to be silent we couldn't speak but right. for, for, for the three weeks we were there you no know, we <laughs> there was no conversation you know i i remember like um I think it was like two and a half weeks into it, I called my mom, told her, said, come get me. <laughs>
1: <laughs> hey, you did well for two and a half weeks. That's amazing. <laughs> imagine imagine how different your life would have turned out if you'd gone that route.
0: Oh, yeah, right. Well, the, the flying nun.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I love that show. <laughs> Gratefully, George chose music instead of the priesthood and in the early 70s toured with the meters coast to coast. But he was also performing as a session musician on numerous hit records, like this one from Robert Palmer. <laughs>
0: popped his head into our sessions once or twice. When we're in the studio, you know, we don't know what's going on in the control room. When we found out years later that Allen had a line going up to his studio, uh, up to his office, above the studio, that he know he can monitor whatever's going on in the, in, the, in the control room. One of the things he never did, well, this is how, uh, quick story, This of this is how the Robert Palmer Project songs got put together. We were downstairs working working out the song and we recorded all three songs. And then Alan came down and made a couple of suggestions and then, you know, we re-recorded those those three songs, leaving certain air happening at the end of each one of those songs. And then he pieced those three songs together and made, made it run, you know, the way, the way it did. But he did that because he was able to hear the session going while it was going down. It was cool. In
1: 1975, the meters toured as the opening act to the Rolling Stones. George recalls the crowd in Paris started to boo them. Both Keith Richards and Mick Jagger came out in support of the band, telling the crowd to shut up and listen to the music. George says that moment kept the meters alive at least for the time being, because in 1977 the band broke up due to personal differences both within the band and with Alan Toussaint, who apparently tried to claim the rights to the band's name. Was there a big fallout with him at the time?
0: No, and and that was absolutely um, not true. Alan never claimed the rights to the band. The name of the band Actually, it was unprotected until I think it was probably mid in the middle 80s or so. Because and, you,
1: uh, you changed it in the 80s to the Funky Meters. Then why did you go through yet another yeah. name change?
0: We, we changed the name for the, to the Funky Meters because it was just Art and myself performing. And uh, Leo was initially going to be a member of, that funk, of the Funky Meters but he decided that he didn't want to um, sign a contract, he didn't want to do you know wD you know because we was going to go through the whole tax thing. we was going to create a tax credits you know and stuff like that. And Leo wanted to be paid in cash and he you know he just didn't want to be a, he didn't really want to be a part of a business. Then I um, turned into a manager slash partner with art and myself, Steve Egerton got us together and and, and, and uh, the three of us incorporated, The Funky Meters, and while the time we was creating that copyright and brand, we discovered that the original Meters was not even original. It was just the Meters was never ever protected. So the Funky Meters took and put the Meters under our umbrella, but forever, you know. And I think it was in some sense, sense that. A lot of people might have thought that Alan Toussaint and Marshall Seahorn owned the name Demeter's the but they never really did. It was never Alan Toussaint's thing. It was it was his partner Marshall Seahorn, was pretty much the diva. And any bad business or bad blood that happened between the band and C Studios. Uh-huh.
1: have been incredibly close to Art Neville for a long, long time. What was he like?
0: Uh, he was a wonderful soul. <laughs> we fought all the time because we were always together. But no, he was sort of like that father figure that, that I never really had. Me and my father never was, was close. And then the, the last three weeks of my, um, while I was in the treatment centre, my father came and visited me every Sunday. And we um uh, we planned to, you know, when I got out of treatment that, you know, we would spend more time together and get to know each other. And um I got out on um, the on Halloween night from the sleepers center, came home and um that next morning I went and played a gig with um some friends. And my wife called me and told me that um, my father had passed away. Uh-huh. So we never really got, you know, got to um, to Hang to, to be, become friends. You know, uh-huh. so Art Neville was pretty much the the friend, you know, the friend of that I and Earl King also. we you know, both up between those two guys. That was that was my father's biggest. There's been some lonely lonely nights.
1: King there with his biggest hit, Those Lonely, Lonely Nights. Earl was a highly respected songwriter and guitarist who'd been a prime New Orleans R&B force for more than four decades. Art Neville had also been on the scene for years, but hadn't joined his siblings in the Neville Brothers just yet.
0: Uh, well, the Neville Brothers, um, I think, started like, in 1988, about, about the 1978 probably six eight months after he uh, after the, the meters pretty much disbanded technically disbanded because it was like you know it was it wasn't like we sat down and discussed the bands broke up you know because art left the band his brother Cyril departed the band just before we were supposed to go on Saturday night live mm-hmm. to um, we had just did the record with David Rubison the new directors album which the record label Warner Brothers was really excited about and thought they had a couple of single releases in that record. One being uh, um, Nam Up in Lights and the other one being Be My Lady. This record, and they hooked us up with the Saturday Night Live production thing, and um, uh, and everything, and ended up neither one of the two Neville brothers showed up for the gig. The, the three of us showed up with another another keyboard player, and um, uh, you know, and that didn't go well. We, the performance went well, but the record label said, uh, and they just dropped us and the record. They didn't really make any noise off that um that New Direction album, which was which would have been. Which should have been a big record for the for the meters, it's a big commercial record.
1: You know? Yeah, it was a great album. Why did the Neville Brothers not show? Well, I mean, Art left the band
0: because there was a, a tour manager we had with us named Rupert Circle, had convinced Art that the rest of the meters didn't sign the contract that he had given Art for us to sign. Well, if we didn't sign that contract, that Art should leave the leave the band and go off and play with you know because we also recorded that record on um, wild Chappatula's album with their uncle Uncle Jolly, big chief Jolly yep and 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 that record was during you know pretty it was moving along really nice it, and it didn't get to the you know the big numbers but it, it did it was, it, was, it made some noise hey, So Rupert told uh, told Art said, man, if they don't want to play, if they don't want to sign the contract, man, you should quit the band and play with your brothers. You know, that was something Art wanted to do anyway. Art had been trying to get the brothers to be in the the Meters band, but then the Meters would have ceased to exist because it would become the Neville Brothers, a vocal band, not an instrumental band. And then, you know, we had already given up Pretty much a, a lot of space as far as being an instrumental band because we were we were now pretty much a vocal band too, you know. So the network with the Neville brothers being in the band, the three other three musicians would have been lost, you know, yeah. you know lost in the mix, you know. So changed that changed it entirely. Yeah. yeah, that was something that we didn't want to do, and Art, so I was Art Art quit the band on an airplane going home after we'd, we uh, recorded the, the New Directions album on that way home. Art quit the band. Uh, so Cyril was still considering staying in the band, but then Art convinced him that he shouldn't do the Saturday Night Live because it was gonna make it was just was gonna show you know a lack of loyalty to, to, to the brothers, you know, and so Cyril decided not to make the Saturday Night Live performance. So we went on the show with a keyboard player that's from another local family, um Batiste Brothers family, um David Batiste Sr. Uh-huh. Which 20 years later, his son, Russell, David Russell Batiste Jr. was a drummer in the Funky Meas. It's
1: a small world, huh? <laughs> small world. <laughs> <Okay>. Absolutely. <laughs> They all ask for you. For who? really even inquired about you. I went on down to the Audubon Zoo. And they all ask for you. The monkey's ass, the tiger's ass, and the elephant asked me too. Neville's departure and with David Batiste Sr. now on keyboards, the guys brought in Willie West as the band's lead singer. It wasn't long before George Porter Jr. also left the group and by 1980, the meters had officially broken up. None of them ever understood the influence they had exerted on the music scene. I don't
0: believe the meters, even all the way up to the point where they broke up and really realised how inspirational they were as a band, you know, I think that if they really had paid much attention to what they were doing, and 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 know uh, at the time when they were doing it, you know, it would have been better. I think we would have we'd have, we have probably lasted longer than we did as a band. Um, but unfortunately, well, fortunately, you know, I say not unfortunately, but fortunately for us, that the music itself. Outlasted the band, you know, and and at this point, the music has um has allowed us individually, you know, to continue as um, solo artists.
1: After the breakup, Art continued his career with the Neville Brothers. Ziggy started touring with Keith Richards and Ron Wood. Both Leo and George became in-demand session players and formed new bands. Don't go anywhere. The story's not quite finished yet.
0: Mm-hmm. This is A Breath of Fresh Air with Sandy Kay.
1: It's a beautiful day. Welcome back. The meters defined New Orleans funk. Nearly all of their own recordings were instrumentals, putting the emphasis on the complex rhythms. The gritty grooves created such distinctive sound that they earned a devoted cult following during the 70s from people like Paul McCartney and Robert Palmer, both of whom used the group as a backing band for recording. After the Funky Meters broke up, you went on to become a a highly coveted session bassist. There's something incredibly unique about the way you play and not being a musician, I can't put that into words. I'm hoping that you might be able to, but you've influenced people like the Red Hot Chili Peppers, like the Beastie Boys, Led Zeppelin, Bob Marley, Queen Latifah, Run DMC. I could roll out a whole lot of names. What is it about the way you play that's captured the imagination of all these musicians that were coming up behind you?
0: You know, I, I can't take the credit for, you know, alone. You know, I believe there was something that the meters did and we did really well. We had, there was space between, you know, the bass and drums, you know, was always very closely tangled together. So, you know, there was always a nice space and, and, and the music for, you know, for other things to happen. And I mean, that was something I learned in personally I think I say I learned from the session working with Alan Toussaint is because he used to always say, it's not what you play, it's what you don't play that make this groove happen. And I think I think that was what a lot of musicians called on to. It. <laughs> kind of a self-imposed rule that I go there with my mind wide open and the first thing first is that you know I try and and lock with the drummer and so when I feel as a bass player as close as I can get to the drummer his pocket is going to pretty much dictate where the groove is and the pocket that I should climb into.
1: So that was their secret ingredient and it set the course for many bands to follow paving the way for today's hip-hop sound
0: the idea of space being, uh, you know, Colonel Bruce Hampton say that space is the place. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. But it. I think he was talking
1: about up there. <laughs> well, they certainly followed in your footsteps big time, didn't they? And you then went on and did a whole bunch of sessions with people like David Byrne and Jimmy Buffett, Tori Amos, Taj Mahal, until you started your own band called The Runnin' Partners in 1990. What brought that about? The need to work. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, you know, I've always wanted. You know, in the meters, out of all those, you know, nine records, I think I was I was only allowed to be able to record two of the songs that I wrote for the band. Which two? I had been. I, I uh, um, one was uh, um, the same old thing. What I keep saying and Leo may disagree with me because you know he claimed real he had wrote everything but um god i can't take the name of it I gotta, <laughs> I gotta i gotta i guess it'll,
1: it'll come back to Murray let's, all,
0: let's all, 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 all of our you know what with a lot of with all of the majority of the meters earlier in the years and this 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 is when I was attempting to write music for the band was when we were doing the instruments in those first three records you know everything from cabbage alley on I had, you know, I had no in, in input as far as writing music for. I was writing songs, but even though I presented them and they got ignored or pushed to the side, say no, we, we we ought to do this. Good. So I wanted to start, you know, doing. I wanted to start playing some music that I wrote, and it was a kind of a, a survival thing to take a shot at, um, you know, my own on my own thing. So you know, my little brother sent me a, a song. That he, um, that he, the music to a song that eventually became the title track for my my, my first album called Running Partners. The song Running Partners was, the, you know, I wrote the lyrics for it. My brother wrote the music, you know, and then I, you know, of course I, I arranged, you know, I took my brother's as a template and just added some little pieces in it, and made it, uh, made it the title song for the for the for the very first record.
1: You had several others after that and there were a few releases including Funk This in 2000 and Can't Beat the Funk in 2011. What was your favourite song from, that, from this period of time with the Running Partners?
0: I think I kind of like reworked the song called I Get High and Happy Song. Happy Song has kind of survived from before running partners because it was, a, I had a I was, in 1980, I had, a, I put a, together a band called Joyride and uh, with, what I didn't put together the band, it was like a combination of a, a guitar player named Bruce McDonald and myself. We were writing songs together and he said, man, this stuff is good, man, we should start a band. So, so that's that, that's what happened in 1980. Late, actually, late 79, we decided to that's let's um, try and put a band together you know and, and, and we went with it and it lasted exactly one year that you know basically it was too much drugs and alcohol <laughs> and, and the problem was is that we were all doing different drugs <laughs> you know? so, so you know that the band didn't, couldn't couldn't survive off of you know five guys playing different mindsets you. know. <laughs> Sing sing a happy song Everywhere I go There are people laughing Every day I see More magic happen People turning hands Living out their plans Let's make the most Of what our lives have to offer Please don't put me In no trick bag It's depressing And it's coming from God. song, don't let the madness get you, don't let the sadness get you, sing Sing a happy song, sing a happy song, song. whatever is the best, it will all get
1: better These days you've got the the band Running Partners still, don't you?
0: Yes, Running Partners is still a functioning band, now it's a four-piece band the keyboard player in this band has been in this band for
1: 27
0: years, Michael uh-huh. Limler.
1: And you've got a new album out called Crying for Hope?
0: Crying for Hope, that's that's the new, um, the new record that was recorded in four different studios. We all, you know, we, we recorded the music in the cloud using Pro Tools. And uh, you know, and it was during the COVID thing, so we couldn't see each other. So, but um, we discovered that we could still work together, yeah. being in different places, and yeah. we did the we did we did the record in four different studios. Yes. Are you happy with it? I'm very pleased with the, uh, how it came out. or well, unlike any of my uh, previous recordings. They, none of them made the charts, but um, you know, but it, you know, I got I I got um. You say, I'm I'm selling some records. It pays for itself. That's put it that way.
1: Yeah, <laughs> and and I guess the aim these days wouldn't be to top the charts. It'd be the satisfaction of of putting out music that does obviously pay for itself, and where you can just continue to express yourself creatively.
0: Exactly. I, you know, my late wife told me. Um, she said that. Uh, she said, well, "What you gonna do? You know, if you know this just doesn't work for you, you no, know? you know." And I said, "Well, you know." Six years ago, me, me and her had this conversation. She passed away November 28th, three, three or four years ago. You know, she said, what are you going to do? if You know, if this just doesn't pan out for you? Because she said, you know, we you, you should just quit playing, you know, and just, you know, maybe start teaching, you know, because I, I was getting a lot of requests to teach. You know? And I just never, never took it on because I just never thought I was that good. You know, I, I thought I knew I could play. I, you know, I could play, but I didn't think I was, I was the kind of player that could teach. So you know, that that was I, that was something that I didn't, never, never, yeah, never gave a second thought.
1: Are you the kind of player that could give up playing? Give up playing? Not yet. <laughs>
0: Not yet. I'm, I'm still enjoying it. You know, we just did a, a tour. With Chumbo and Shorty, and they were all on tour buses and stuff, you know. And I, I was invited to, to you know, to join onto the tour bus and travel with the guys, you know. And I, I declined and took my Ford Transit, custom transit, on tour. And I, you know, we followed the tour buses all—most of the time, we were in front of the tour buses mm. and drove from the East Coast, We were from New Orleans all the way up the East Coast and, and all the way across to California. You know, everybody want. You know, everybody. Um, most of the guys, because I, I was like the. I was an artist with the Dumpster Funk band, performing the music of the Meters. They all flew home. and, you know, and they was trying, You know, the guys. You know, Tony Hall, the bass, uh, the guitarist, bass player in that band was saying, "Man, Tony, you ought to, you ought to fly home, man. Why you want to stay in that band for tw- thirty-seven hours?" You know. I said, "Man, it's, it's, it's what I do." <laughs> And I, I got it, I got it in my I got it in my van, but my, my keyboard player Michael um drove, you know, did did the majority of the driving. And and my girlfriend, she came out and joined us in California uh, and did the five the last five days. And you still, still love it, George? It. Yeah. I'm still I'm still, you know, it's still it's still fun. I, you know, having I mean, like I said, December 26th, I'll be 75 years old. And I'm still enjoying the road, you know, I still enjoy it. Been playing in front of me, you know, I played in front of audiences that I hadn't, you know, that I hadn't done before. You know, we were playing in Good front deal. of large numbers yeah. of people, you know. So, yeah. I mean, it wasn't playing my music, but they was playing music I was a part of.
1: George Porter Jr., which track on Crying for Hope is the closest to your heart?
0: Crying for Hope is probably the A song, you know, but I I kind of like the instrumental things. There's this one song on it called Spanish Moon. I wrote that song for the guitar player to play the lead on. the song was wrote but just me and my acoustic bass. I gave the you know the melody lick to to Michael, and then Michael arranged it with the um in Pro Tools. And then you know, sent it to Chris and I said, I asked Chris, I said, Man, can you play this melody? You know, as written, you know, and and they said, Yeah. So so basically what it ended up being is he doubled my part, but then I thought he was gonna take my part away. And they both insisted, no, that needs to stay. I haven't played the song yet because I have to learn that bass line. <laughs> <laughs>
1: George Porter Jr., great to meet you. It's so good that you're still playing, still touring, still loving it, and still putting out albums. Really appreciate your time today.
0: Yeah. Thank you very much for inviting. Yeah, tell those promoters over there, yeah, I'm ready. I got a bag I stay packed. I'm ready to come back over. I haven't been there in a
1: few years. Oh, we'll absolutely <laughs> let them know. Take care Sounds of yourself great. meantime, won't you, George? Bye-bye. Bye. The funky meters continued to play into the 2000s with the addition of Art Neville's son, Ian, from 2007 to 11. The group continued to play a few festivals together until Art Neville announced his retirement from music in 2018. He'd battled a number of health issues, including complications from back surgery. Art Neville died in July 2019 at the age of 81. And so ends the story of the band he founded, the meters thanks for your company today i really hope you've enjoyed hearing the story of that incredible band i've certainly learnt a thing or two along the way too have fun won't you for the week coming up i'll look forward to being back in your company again same time next week bye now because it's a beautiful day Mm -hmm. you've been listening to a breath of
0: fresh air with sandy k
1: beautiful day You're gone away It's a beautiful day